With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, we are still doing this 30-day free trial thing, so you can get behind the, the golden wall of membership and to see what's really going on at the, the, the virtual noodle salad parties that we've got um, with all of our um, uh, for members only exclusive material. So please sign up today if you haven't already for 30 days, and then if you like what you see, Maybe you become a fully paid member of the Dispatch. Um, today's episode is brought to us by our friends at Liquid IV and ExpressVPN. More about them in a little bit. Hey, listeners, it's Jonah. Uh, this is me talking to you from the future. We just finished recording the podcast that you're about to hear me introduce as if it's about to happen, but it's already happened You know, in, in, in my timeline. It's very much like the movie Tenet. Um, we're doing a backwards entropy thing. Anyway, I just wanted you to know that apparently the technology in Tenet is much more user-friendly than the Wi-Fi in the U.S. Senate. And we had a whole bunch of screen freezings and lost audio, and we had to stitch some stuff together. So if something sounds like uh, there was some weird jump cut between one bit of audio and another, it's not that our brilliant audio producer, Caleb, screwed anything up. It's just this is the uh, the meal that he was served, and I apologize to Caleb on behalf of the IT department of the U.S. Senate. So here we go. Uh, today we have um, uh, a remnant veteran, uh, one of uh, you know, sort of an OG remnant guest. I don't know if this is the the coveted f- uh, uh, five time return guest number, but he's got to be close. Is that um, my full Gallagher? Would that be a full Gallagher? I don't know if it's a full Gallagher. A full Gallagher, plus knowing Gallagher, Gallagher, a full Gallagher has other connotations to it that I don't really want to get into. Yeah, but yeah. Um, uh, we have full Garrity. Uh, he's been on here five times. Anyway, uh, we have uh, this guy, you may have heard of him. He's a senator from this state I've driven through. Um, uh, Senator Ben Sass, welcome back to the remnant. Good to be here. Thanks for the invite. Congrats to your wife on getting to sleep in Walmart parking lots in the greatest state in the union. Um, it's a, you know, it, it's a useful thing to do when people accuse you of being just sort of a creature of the beltway to respond. Hey, how many Walmart parking lots have you slept in? Right. Um, it's the, Sometimes it's you get the, interesting answers to that. but It's the new Char- Charles Murray bubble quiz. If you're not a double-digit Walmart parking lot sleeper, you're nothing. I think that's exactly right. Um, so uh, I often say, 
uh, I don't know if you know that I say this, but I often say that what the sort of the best seven minute or however long it was schoolhouse rock explanation of what Congress is for was actually your little diatribe at the beginning of the Kavanaugh hearings. And it goes into my whole larger indictment of how Congress isn't doing its job. And, uh, and so I was very excited to see you had this piece in the Wall Street Journal last week, Make the Senate Great Again. And uh, you, were, you, were, you were throwing some, up, some ideas against the wall to see what would stick. Uh, so why don't you just sort of run through some of those ideas and then we can sort of expand and, and dilate on it further. We're not dilating on nothing. Um, but <laughs> I, I think the first thing is we need to agree that the Senate doesn't work. Uh, the founders had this great idea that you separate power vertically and horizontally if you believe in universal human dignity. And uh, the Senate is kind of the most unique single institution that the founders created in the Constitution. And it has all of these supermajoritarian requirements so that the the new democracy that they were creating, the democratic republic that they were creating, which was obviously a move from a, a British monarchy, um, was supposed to have all these constraints against 5149 impulses changing the, question, the direction of the country radically all at once. And right now, the Senate doesn't deliberate, which means America doesn't have any great deliberative body. So to me, the main thing is to problematize in common that we need uh, a body like the founder's vision of a Senate where there'd be a lot of deliberation. So then you're right. I was throwing a whole bunch of stuff at the wall. Um, rare to have the Wall Street Journal agree to publish a listicle. Uh, but basically, <laughs> that's what we did is uh, throw a whole bunch of ideas out there so that people could debate them. I'd like to have term limits. And so I decided to modify the traditional two term. Uh, two six-year term limit to one single 12-year term. Uh, it would mean that nobody, once they became a senator, would be you know, preoccupied constantly with getting to K Street to fundraise. Um, and if you don't do that, if you don't have a single 12-year term, I'm still great with two six-year terms. Um, but another option would be to just prohibit at my Senate rule, not an attack on the First Amendment by, by a statute, but just a Senate rule that prohibits us from fundraising while the Senate is in D.C. sitting in session. Um, another option would be to debate repealing the 17th Amendment and go back to a kind of federalism where state legislatures had the power to decide how in the separation of powers vertically and horizontally, um, there'd be some representation of the diversity geographically and in terms of job and geography density. Um, I think we should cut the cameras. Uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee is arguably the only part of the Senate's committee structure that works really well. Um, the fact that we don't have cameras is just an accidental byproduct of the fact that we're dealing with classified information. But it turns out nobody's ever uh, trolling for sound bites in there because there's no camera to capture it. I'm, I want transparency. So I, I propose that we would have audio of every hearing available live uh, and that you'd have immediately transcript, uh, transcribed. You'd have transcripts immediately available from the hearings. Um, but you could have the kind of... Um, and you could still have print reporters there. You could have print reporters in the room. Yeah, pen and pad, absolutely. But what we have now is hearings that are not, sorry, that we're voting in the Senate. So the buzzing you're hearing in the background, I can't do anything about. Um, I just thought I was drunk. <laughs> uh, they're not mutually exclusive propositions. The, the cameras change the dynamic in the room because people don't ask real questions if they're instead trolling for a soundbite that they can hope goes viral to the dozens of people who tell them that they're the greatest you know, owner of the libs or vice versa out there. 
Um, I think we should really deliberate on whether permanent fiefdoms around the committee structure is a good idea. We've been delegating authority from the legislative to the executive branch for 80 or 90 years. Uh, we should have a super committee that looks at all of those delegations and essentially tries to sun sunset them on a one, two, three, four, five year rolling basis. And all of a sudden, I think the Congress would be able to tell the American people what two or three big things we're going to get done every two years. The word Congress, as you know, is just a, a noun that means meeting. Uh, and the Congress lasts for two years, as long as the House of Representatives sits, uh, the House of Representatives sits uh, from one election to the next. And I think we should be every January of an odd numbered year uh, having a big debate before the American people about what two or three big things are we going to tackle. And that would probably require revising the committee structure. There's more. I said stuff about a, a dorm, which freaked a lot of people out. Um, but I think, I think the short version is we should do less fundraising and more actual deliberating. I want to see you and Ted Cruz play beer pong. I mean, I think that'd be awesome. Um, so uh, let's let's go back to the TV one because this is this is this is in some ways painful for me because I think one of the greatest citizens of the last thirty years is Brian Lamb. I love Brian Lamb. He's just a sweet, mensch, patriotic, decent, nerdy dude. Um, and I think he was wrong. You know, I've I, I came to this very painfully. Um, the uh, all of in largely, you know, convinced me of it that you cannot do, forget deliberation, you can't have negotiation on camera, right? You just can't, you can't dangle an option of like screwing some of your own coalition in real time where people are watching it. You have to be able to have some flex in how you sort of do these kinds of negotiations. And cameras in Congress, I think, of the obvious things that have been net bad for America and net bad for politics, cameras in Congress is probably, if not the top of the list, then, then really, really high up on it. And I think the best example of this was that Bill Barr hearing a few months ago or a month, six weeks ago, where Republicans and Democrats just, no one was actually interested in oversight. No one wanted to hear what Barr had to say, whether you thought he was this evil supervillain enabling, you know, you know, a fascist takeover, or if you thought he was the greatest hero who ever lived, you'd think you would want to get some answers out of him. And, and, and instead, each member of each party refused to give him any time so that they could have their sound bites repeated, even though they were the same sound bites, just from different mouths over and over again. So I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the idea of getting cameras. Um, but before we leave that, can I just uh, say yeah. uh, two, two quick things? One, Brian Lamb, one, Neil Postman. Uh, so first of all, you're absolutely right that Brian Lamb is not just a great American, but did um, a, a ton of public service that's really important and I think will be recognized for decades or a, a century. Um, he's also one of the best interviewers out mm -hmm. there. Um, I invited him in to lunch one time just to thank him and praise him for how great his book TV American history interviews are. I yeah. mean, there, there are very few people who don't get caught up in the idea that when they're interviewing somebody, they think they're the storyline. And he could ask what a meteor seven word question that most people can ask in seven paragraphs. It would be, you know, Jesus, the resurrection, what happened? You know, right. he was just, oh, yeah. he was, he was great at that. And I, I brought him in uh, to just thank him for how good an interviewer he is on American history and bringing it alive for people. And I think book TV is special programming. Um, but we ended up in a fight about exactly this thing. And he was completely unopened 
there was there was no flexibility for him about the idea that maybe cameras changed the action. They didn't just bring a new ability for outsiders to see what was happening inside the room. What happens is the people in the room start playing for fame uh, instead of for power. And the founders envisioned a world where the different branches would be jealous of their prerogatives. And I think Neil Postman in the late 80s, whenever Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Television came out, uh, I think C-SPAN really ramped up its cameras from about 1989 to about 1995 across the hill. So Postman was writing before that, but he essentially predicted idiocracy. I mean, he mm. predicted the rise of reality TV presidents, not just this one, but, you know, Oprah or Clooney or whoever comes next. Um, yeah, I think you're the, now you have a PhD in history, right? Not poli-sci, but right. I think in poli-sci it's called the Hawthorne effect that it's very similar to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle that if you observe something, you change the behavior of the thing that you're observing. And it, that seems to me at this point, just fundamentally irrefutable. And at the same time, if it were just C-SPAN, it'd probably be okay, <laughs> um, but, or at least be better. But the live wall-to-wall -wall hearings on cable news, um, or just the ability for the congressman to get, or the, the politicians to get the video and do what they want with it, messes things up, which is why, I, as, again, I love Brian, but I now think it's insane to have cameras in the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, yeah, terrible idea. Um, all right, before we get into the nitty gritty on some of these other ones, I just want to ask you, do you actually subscribe to all these ideas? Are you just this wacky sort of McKinsey guy spitballing, let's run it up the flag and see who salutes it kind of thing? Or would you be happy if you could get every single one of these things through? I mean, there's some of them I love more than others, but I think the main goal is to get to a, you know, a group of people who will admit in public uh, that the Senate doesn't work and we need deliberation. So you're not, you're not going to get all of them, right? You're not going to simultaneously have uh, a single 12 year term in the Senate and a change to the rules on fundraising because you don't need both of them. Uh, you need one or the other to change the culture. So what I really want to do is get a bunch more senators talking in public about stuff that most of them will admit in private. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that was the effect after this came out is a whole bunch of people said, holy crap, you know, the 800 pound gorilla emperor has no clothes, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use. A bunch of people said, Hey, we talk about this in the gym, but it's kind of weird to talk about it in public. And I'm like, <laughs> but we're not serving the American people well. Yeah. So I, mean, I, I just wrote this piece for the other times about the electoral college. And, um, it seems to me, you know, not to have people just punch through the square that says you all live in on their bing remnant bingo cards. But um, I think one of the, 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 one of the overarching problems that sort of feeds into a lot of this, particularly the 17th Amendment repeal thing, is that a lot of people now are just simply uncomfortable with the idea of, to put it bluntly, states, right? Yeah. This idea that, um, that there should be competing spheres of government um, and all of this blather that you hear constantly, which I think we're going to hear a lot more of in the years to come, about how the Senate is undemocratic because of its unequal representation. So, I mean, isn't part of the problem really the fact that we've done such a piss poor job of explaining to, to Americans that, yes, we're a democratic country, but we also, the point of a constitution is to channel democratic energies in positive directions rather than just say 51% of the people get to pee in the cornflakes or 49% of the people? Here, here. I mean, we, we haven't done basic civics for 50 years. 
in the late 60s, a whole bunch of stuff was uh, contested and coming apart in the country. And uh, lots of those debates were incredibly important. Obviously, the the civil rights acts of of the middle of the 60s took too long in coming. A lot of the great society programs uh, that came at that moment, I disagree with because I think they're unsustainable for the number of workers per retiree and the fiscal overpromising. There were important debates to be had about Vietnam. But you put all that together and cities were on fire and a lot was broken in the country. And basically, people decided late 60s to early 70s, hey, maybe we all need to calm down. Everything's too red hot. Let's get away from some of these contested issues. And it turns out they got away not only from contested policies, but also basic constitutional transmission. And the founders all thought you only have a republic from one generation to the next if you pass along these ideas. And we're two and a half generations since we last did it. So if you see surveys of high school and college students' knowledge uh, or affirmation of the First Amendment, for instance, Something like 40% of people under age 35 uh, think the First Amendment's a bad idea because you might use your freedom of speech to say something that hurts somebody else's feelings. I mean, that, the fundamental American thing is that we distinguish between speech and violence because we believe the dignity anthropology of every individual is so grand that they need to be protected from violence so that they can debate ideas. And we have lots and lots of our country who doesn't believe in that anymore. So you're exactly right. We have a democratic republic. Democratic is a modifier. The noun there is that we're a republic. Um, 330 million people is a heck of a lot of people to make any decisions in common. The founders wondered whether 4 million people uh, could really deliberate about anything together. Because most of what's meaningful in life, most of where you flourish, most of where you find your happiness, where you find your agency, you don't just get to be rage passive. is in the local community. It's in your family. It's in your firm. It's in your neighborhood. It's in your church or synagogue. It's in your Tocquevillian not-for-profit society. And so people need to be building stuff locally. And we, we believe in federalism, we Americans historically, because we want to decentralize stuff back closer to the people. So states were the old version of it. But I'd be happy to have a big debate, even though it would lead to some policies that are left of center that I wouldn't ideally prefer. I'd be willing to have a big debate about a new federalism of the super cities. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd like to devolve power from Washington, D.C. so that lots of Americans could be closer to the locus of decision making. And so we could have more pluralism in the country. We don't agree on everything. Let different people have different experiments. So, um, ditto. So we're, this is, this is from my hymnal, so I'm not going to dwell on it, but I, I was just looking through this. I could have sworn that you had something in here about the filibuster, but I'm actually not seeing it. Well, I, I think I just said at the very beginning that the Dems are going to say what's wrong with polarization in America is that the Senate isn't more responsive. And so we need to, if they win a majority or supermajority, by which I mean like 53 or four, I think they'll end the filibuster and they're going to say the problem with the Senate is it didn't immediately do more stuff faster like the House of Representatives. Right. But I, I, my, what I was getting at is that one of the, you know, among the sort of right wing constitutional Senate nerd set, which I think you're, you know, a fairly large dashboard saint, um, the I want to thank all seven of our fans, <laughs> um, the one of the things you often hear is let's go back to real filibusters. And I just realized that you didn't have that in there. Like you have to stand up and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. You know, the Mr. Smith goes to Washington model. Um, what do you think about that? And why isn't it in there? 
Yeah, because um, James Toronto and Paul Gigo only gave me so many words. Uh, uh, I, I'm I'm for that. Um, I I definitely think that we should be having a Senate floor that has real people on it. Um, we right now one of the other horrible things that the C-SPAN camera rules do in the Senate is it allows senators to uh, do theater where they lie to their voters and they lie to viewers on C-SPAN as if they're actually having a debate. They regularly do this hand gesturing to the senator right next to them that they're supposedly rebutting, but the rules in the Senate require the C-SPAN camera to be cropped right around their head and shoulders, so you don't know as a viewer that there's no one in the Senate. The vast majority of the time, there's zero, one, or two people um, listening in to the senator who's making the speech on the floor. I think we should pack the floor and have debate. And frankly, if to maintain a filibuster, you had to continue maintaining control of the floor, that would change the dynamic a lot. People would use the filibuster less, uh, but when they did, there would be an incentive for the broader public to recognize this is a big deal. Maybe we should have a real debate here in the country. Um, You know, one of the things that I think would help debate enormously is if senators were in fact better hydrated Although that is a problem if you bring back the traditional filibuster because you can't leave the floor. And if you're super hydrated, that's a problem. But that does bring to mind liquid IV. No, but it's true. I mean, like you often feel, I mean, often when you think that you haven't gotten enough sleep, the reality is you just haven't gotten enough water or enough hydration because sometimes there are things that can actually hydrate you better than water. And that's why I want to talk about liquid IV. One serving of liquid IV provides the same hydration as drinking two to three bottles of water alone. Liquid IV contains five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana. Healthier than sugary sports drinks, no artificial flavors or preservatives, and less sugar than an apple. Made with clean ingredients, non-GMO, vegan, and free of gluten, dairy, and soy. Liquid IV's optimal ratio of glucose, sodium, and potassium delivers water and nutrients straight into the bloodstream. It's the perfect balance to help you hydrate more quickly and effectively than water alone. One stick of Liquid IV and 16 ounces of water can give you as much hydration as two to three bottles of plain water. Also, Liquid IV is working to change the world. Liquid IV is donating 3.7 million servings in response to COVID-19. Products are being donated to hospitals, first responders, food banks, veterans, and active military. So, Liquid IV is available nationwide at Costco and Target, or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and issue the promo code DINGO. That's liquidiv.com, promo code DINGO, D-I-N-G-O. That's 25% off anything you order when you use promo code DINGO at liquidiv.com. Get better hydration today at liquidiv.com, promo code DINGO. We will thank Liquid IV for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant and for keeping America hydrated. So, uh, you know, I want to ask you some other stuff like, you know, are we going to war with China and all that kind of thing? But um, uh, it's it's more worthwhile to actually talk about the stuff that has no chance of ever happening, like repealing the 17th amendment. Um, so, uh, which I would love to do. I I think it's great. But one of the things, uh, that you often hear from people who think it's a stony idea is at least the ones who know some American history is that we had a lot of really bad senators, a lot of hacks 
that work their way up to get these sort of sinecure nominations from corrupt state legislatures. And the idea that, um, you know, that Illinois is going to send us, you know, the new Cicero of the Plains um, is is optimistic at best. What do you what do you say about that? Yeah. So first of all, really important historical point. Um, let me start by saying I'm anti-utopian about any and every proposal. Right. So I don't I don't think government is ever going to work perfectly. Uh, and it's not where people should be looking to find their source of happiness. So to the idea that anything proposed here isn't perfect, that's absolutely true. Um, the question is, in which direction would it nudge us? And so in my mind, while it's true that 100 years ago, we had a lot of fairly powerful and corrupt state legislatures, uh, today we have lots of legislatures that have almost no power because mm-hmm. coercive federalism has sort of made a mockery of the idea that a lot of state decisions matter. Medicaid is the largest budget issue most state legislatures face, and they don't really have any power over it, right? The federal government puts every bit of handcuff on the way you run your Medicaid program. So it turns out almost every Medicaid program in America is crappy, and they're crappy in the same ways because there's no diversity of failure. Again, if, if you have real federalism in America, it's not some naive, uh, optimistic, utopian view that everything will work perfectly. Um, It is that things will fail in different ways instead of the same way. And then some governors and state legislatures will be able to compete against each other. So I think right now, state legislatures are too weak rather than too powerful. And once upon a time when they were sending a lot of corrupt, bad senators to D.C. 100 years ago, it's partly because they were so powerful that they could get away with that. I think what we'd like to see is a revivification of local decision making at the county level, uh, at the city level, at the state legislature level. And so, again, I don't think we're going to get a new federalism of the states, but we might be able to negotiate to something like a new federalism of the mega cities. And what the one thing that I think is important for us to have in common about this moment is pre-COVID. So 2008 financial crisis till late 2019, when the economy was still really humming in that 11 year period, there was a ton of job creation in America. And yet all net job creation came from just 30 cities and Mm -hmm. their suburbs. Um, In the rest of America, there was job loss. And so in the agglomeration economy, even though the average new firm may be a smaller firm than the firms of 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, it's more important to be located next to similar firms to have the yin and yang, the churn, ebb and flow, I don't know what the right term is, um, of all the neighboring firms having human capital go back and forth. And there's all this positive synergy that happens in that environment. That is a 30 metro region and suburbs and exurbs phenomenon. And I think if you gave the American people the choice of a more powerful president and Congress or a more powerful county board and mayor, I don't think it's just on the right end of the spectrum. I think a whole bunch of the center left on the spectrum would also say, you know what, I'd rather have my mayor and county board be a little more powerful in Congress and the presidency be a little less powerful. And we should be finding solutions that nudge us in that direction. Huge parts of the future of transportation policy, housing policy, parts of energy policy, job retraining. A lot of this is going to need to happen in more plural ways, in more local ways. Um, And I think we got to find ways to nudge our system toward a place where red and blue states may say, hey, instead of just constantly competing with the language of the next election is the one that'll bring heaven or hell. Right. What if there were some cooperation about the idea that maybe we should decentralize some decisions and let red and blue cities and states uh, do different things? Yeah. So this is this is 
this gets at one of my fundamental peeves, and it's in my head because, I, as I said, I wrote this thing about the Electoral College. I, I think that one way to th- I'll put this, one way to think about what is making our politics suck is that voters, parties, political institutions, and politicians alike, present company excluded, have convinced themselves, contrary to all evidence and constitutional structure, that we live in a parliamentary democracy. <laughs> right. Right? And so... You watched during the Democratic primaries, one candidate after another will say, on day one, I will ban guns, ban fracking. I will raise, you know, just last week, Joe Biden said, day one, I will uh, raise the corporate income tax. They have no power to do that, right? I mean, I mean, even under executive authorities, you can play some games, but you actually need Congress to do these things. But we've convinced people on the right and the left that if you, that you don't vote for politicians anymore, you vote for party. And if your party gets in, like in a parliamentary democracy, you get to have everything that you want. And, and so getting rid of things like the Electoral College or the Senate actually makes all of those problems worse, right? Yeah. It increases polarization. It increases this sort of will to power that if my tribe can get 50 plus one, we get to have everything and the other side gets to have nothing. And so put, I agree with you, pushing things down to like cities and states where which are basically like wetlands that absorb, you know, floodwaters before they become a problem. That's the way to do it. But nobody is thinking in those terms anymore. Again, present company um, excluded. Uh, So how in the world, I mean, let me put it this way. What are the odds? What is, what do you think is the most passable um, in terms of actually getting votes to be passed? Most implementable of your suggestions here. Well, I'll give you a brief answer, but then I also want to pull up and, and challenge a little bit of the assumption when we say nobody is saying this stuff, because I think we all, those of us who you comment on it and I for a time am, am serving in this domain, um, I think we live in an echo chamber of a very, very small number of people of the politically addicted. And I don't think those people, the 14 percent, um, are representative of the 100 percent of Americans. But the one that I think is most likely uh, to see some you know, incremental progress is not cutting the cameras from all hearings. But I think most senators will agree in private that there isn't, uh, there aren't enough environments where people are together, the hundred members of the Senate or some subset of them, if you want to do it on a committee basis, where people are together having honest conversations as opposed to BS theater, right? Like I, my dad was a wrestling coach. I was a wrestler. My nine-year-old son's a wrestler. We all have great jokes about what WrestleMania is, but nobody actually thinks pro wrestling is the same thing as the sport of wrestling, mm-hmm. right? But that distinction is lost on us in our politics. We only have pro wrestling now. We only have WWF and WWE. We don't have any actual deliberative politics happening. And so I think most people who serve in this body, um, get that. And so there's not going to be a cutting of the cameras out of every uh, hearing room. But I think there is a desire to find more times where people are talking and it isn't just BS theater to to hope you get a soundbite that goes viral. But let's yeah. back up for a second. I, the sociological study tribes that came out in about September of 19, it was like an 18 month long study yeah. of Americans media consumption habits. And I think it showed that only about 14% of Americans pay attention to politics on a daily basis. And so it caused me, you mocked me already as a BCG McKinsey nerd, so I'll, mm-hmm. I'll embrace the nerddom. 
um, where everything has to be reducible in a marital dispute to a two by two matrix. Um, <laughs> I, I, I reframed my view of American politics on two dimensions, and it's a three by three matrix. And so the x axis goes from progressivism on the left to kind of center left centrism, center right, and then whatever the right of the spectrum is going to ultimately be called. And, but adding a y-axis, I think, helps us make sense of what we're actually wrestling with, which is the y-axis is your level of political engagement. And the mm-hmm. top tier is the addicted. And the middle tier is the healthy middle brow people who get that politics matter, but it shouldn't be the center of your life or your community or hopes or dreams or where you think you're going to find an enemy of my enemy is where you might supposedly find a friend. And the bottom tier is the politically disengaged. And so we talk a lot on the x-axis about the crowding out of the ideological middle. I say this is, you know, the third or fourth most conservative guy in the Senate, but it's clearly true that people don't feel like they're allowed to be in the middle anymore. If you're going to talk about politics, you got to do heaven and hell. You got to do good. Okay, so uh, just so listeners know, we lost uh, Senator Sass there for a second. And then because he is a mischievous, mischievous, puckish guy, he decided to use the dead air to go run and vote on something. Um, so he's back. And the last thing I heard you talking about was sort of the Eisenhowerian strain of American politics being more representative of what people actually believe. Yeah. Um, I I think that that's what people have historically believed, um, that politics matters, but it's not the center of your life. And I think it's what lots of people still believe today. So I think that the move to cameras and then to cable news screaming and then to blue check, you know, an American Republic of blue check marks by blue check marks and for blue check marks um, is not actually it's a bad thing, but it's not actually what most people think or want. And so I spend a lot of time doing field work in Nebraska where I try to talk to regular people, not just those who go out of their way to come to political events. So I drive a garbage truck and I harvest wheat fields and do ag manufacturing and work with a tree service. And I used to drive Uber fairly regularly. All of those kinds of things where you encounter real people trying to put bread on the table for their kids, when they talk about politics, they talk about it in a completely different way. And I don't just mean on that x-axis, ideologically moderate, but they talk about their engagement in a different, more moderate way. They just want Washington to do a small number of things, but do those things more effectively than it does them now. And they mostly don't want to find community in politics. And so the anti-anti stuff that dominates our, our current politics for the 14% of the, the weirdos, and I'm, I'm not saying that too disparagingly because I'm putting us in that category as well, but the 8% in the upper left, the, the neo-socialists, if you will, the politically addicted far left, uh, so far left on the ideological spectrum, but way at the top on how much of politics they spend, they cons- consumes their identity in their life. And what's changed in the last five or so years, so I think I think 2016 is more a consequence than cause of all that's crazy in our time and in our life. But we've gone from 2% of the right, the upper right, to about 6% of America is in the upper right. And that eight plus six, that 14% of the politically addicted, they're more and more into politics, but they're crowding out the Eisenhowerian middle and they're getting some people to join them. There are some people who are becoming more politically addicted because of the way politics happens as blood sport WrestleMania. But what's mostly happening is we're driving that whole healthy middle brow tier to disengagement. But I don't think those people will stay disengaged forever because if the Dems win a supermajority and abolish the filibuster and 
change the Supreme Court size from nine to 13 or 15 by 12 months from now, and they do immediate new, you know, 51st and 52nd state. And if they talk about the Green New Deal by a simple majority, you know, the consequences of these bad policy decisions will be really big, but they'll also come about in a way that'll make a whole bunch of normal people say, why do we let the freaks run the madhouse? Yeah, so I'm very sympathetic to this in the context of the sort of catastrophization of American politics. I think it's entirely possible there's more than a non-trivial chance that Democrats, if they get the Senate, will do a lot of really bad things if Biden wins. Um, But I think a lot of people on on our side of the ideological aisle have very short-term memories about the fact that a lot of the bad things that Obama did devastated the Democratic Party in response. You know, I mean, Obamacare cost the Democratic Party a thousand elected officials across the country. And I mean, you know, we're not allowed to invoke Hegel in a positive way around here, but there is a dialectic here is that you have a, you know, you you have a move and then there's a there's a response to it. And um, the straight line projection of if the other side wins, they'll just keep winning forever is kind of nuts. The problem I guess I have, and I think we probably agree on this, is that as it stands right now, other than some catastrophic wild swing to the left, um, there is no incentive structure to wake up the Eisenhowerian strain. And, And there's an enormous incentive structure to continue down the path of this pseudo event reality show politics that we're complaining about. I mean, there was a profile of Matt Gates in uh, Vanity Fair recently, uh, which you can let me invoke without comment if you want, but where he, uh, he's, he had some rules about what he's learned in Washington. And it was one is always do TV. And if you're not making news, you're not governing, which makes me want to cut myself. Right. And, um, uh, and I, I responded that, you know, something on Twitter about how he had no idea what governing was. And all these people were like, you don't know what governing is, you know, and there's like governing is owning the libs or something. Right. More seriously, though, in the House. There was just a recent survey about this um, or a study about this. And I've talked to people on the Hill about this very problem. People are closing their policy shops. And converting them essentially into meme generating uh, you know, uh, bull factories where they just care about Twitter and, and social media stuff and owning the libs. And, uh, if you, and that, and what they're, and they're doing that because they're responding to a, to an incentive structure. Where is the reasonable incentive structure pushing the other way about, you know, activating people who say, I can't turn on the news because it makes me feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I agree with you. They're a majority. But how do you incentivize them to send a signal to Washington that is, you know, uh, as, as Rush Limbaugh used to joke, that is raging moderation, right? Where, where, how do you set up that incentive structure? Well, first of all, I'm embarrassed when we talked about how little civics there is in the country. I'm embarrassed, Jonah, that you didn't talk about the uh, ninth article of the constitution, which has that rule that 5,000 retweets equals one law. And, uh, I mean, the, there is a, a, a governor Morris got that in there, right? I mean, that was the, that was his big thing, but anyway, go on. He, he was mostly an Instagram guy, if I remember, but, um, I, I think that there are a lot of people who do think the, the little echo chambers of political media consumption 
are much, much bigger than they are. So first of all, you're, you're naming a big problem and we agree there's, I, I want to be a happy warrior tonally and because of my theology and because my wife slaps me around if I'm not, but there's bad stuff happening in our basic civics and politics right now. I, ag- I agree with you. So I don't want, I don't want to sound naive, but I do think we often really overstate how many people are paying attention to this stuff. So when I was writing on political tribalism two or three years ago, a lot more than, than I do now. And when I was thinking about it at that point, Hannity had the most watched cable show and Matto was second. And they were at about 3.2 million and 2.9 million uh, viewers a night. I think Tucker's breaking 4 million a lot now, but that still means you're at, you're talking about one and a half percent of the public and nine tenths of 1% of the public. We're talking smaller than the Gary Johnson and the Marianne Williamson electorates here, right? Like the share of people that want to do politics as their entertainment community is really, really tiny. And so I don't know what happens in the Republican Party after Donald Trump uh, either wins re-election and leaves office in 2025, or if he loses now and leaves office in January 2021. But I think one useful thing to think about is the part of the Republican Party that is interested in light versus just heat, right? Like there is an anger versus future dimension in this party. And as somebody who spends a lot of time with regular voters, I think regular voters are way more interested in the future than they're interested in anger. It's just the the political media consumption feedback loops and incentives are all for what you said Gates believes governance is, which is just owning. Leslie, I typed your symptoms into the thing up here and it says you could have network connectivity problems. So I agree with you entirely that I think there is a, I don't want to use the word silent majority because it has the wrong connotation, but there is a normal majority out there that doesn't invest their lives in politics the way that 14% does. The pro, my point is, is that the incentive structure right now is structured entirely around political elites responding to that minority. So you can talk about the low ratings, comparatively low ratings of, of Hannity and Maddow and all of that, or of Tucker, but politicians are responding to that. They're not responding to PBS NewsHour or, alas, the remnant. They're responding to the loudest voices in the room. And I just don't, I mean, I think your suggestions here would help in this regard. But is there something more concrete we can do to tell people to say you don't have to put up with our politics being like this? So uh, let's take a slightly longer term perspective than the next, you know, election of 50 days from now or than the next two, three, four, five, six years, because I agree with you, we're on a bad trajectory. But I think one of the things we'll look back on 2016 as about um, not Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton but an electorate that said, we don't like any of this. This is not working. There were a lot of people screaming, I don't like these choices. I don't like the way DC works. I want something different. I think we need to stimulate a different kind of candidate. Um, and I think that they're, one of the things we'll see 2016 on as his, retrospectively is people saying, hey, the way everybody has been doing this for the last six, eight, 10, 12, 14 years is not headed in a direction that we like. And I think most people don't want politics as religion. And yet the politically addicted are mostly doing politics as religion. And so if you think by analogy to what's happening in your business, for instance, um, the way you all are doing subscription 
uh, newsletters that people are paying for, that's a good move. What's happening is we're going from a broad but shallow model, which is advertising for everything, which clearly creates a clickbait incentive. You know, the, the, the start of every BuzzFeed-like article now that says, this is the organ of his body Tom Brady's thinking about the most right now. <laughs> right? Um, th- there is a clickbait incentive to keep people through the next commercial break or to the next tweet or to the email that really isn't going to tell you the answer to the news story, but I click on it and then it'll take me, it'll open my Chrome browser and open the web page, and then somebody gets a credit for a click. I hope that we might have more deeper communities, both of place and of idea. And I think people are lonely. I think there's a ton of data that shows a having of friendship in America in the last 30 years. They'd rather have more density in their neighborhood than they have. And right now we haven't figured out what the models are for new place-based community or for new idea, but non-place-based community, except you guys are building some of it. The newsletter model isn't just you guys. The guys who founded Substack look like they're getting rich really fast because um, it turns out there is a share of the public who says, you know what? I spend a whole bunch of money on French fries every year and maybe I should spend 50 or 100 or 150 bucks to actually participate in communities of discourse where somebody's serving me news because they're trying to serve me, not serve just the advertisers that want to keep me titillated for another 17 seconds. And, and so, that's why people should subscribe to the dispatch. <laughs> I am not allowed based on <laughs> ethics to agree with that comment. I understand. So, um, uh, cause we don't, so the listeners should know, uh, things have been just going batty with the Senate Wi-Fi, and we don't know how long we have the Senator. So this may end abruptly. Um, and if only the Senate had been using an express VPN, things might be better. When you use the bathroom, you always close the door behind you, right? You don't want random passers-by in the Senate dorm looking in on you. So why would you let people lick in on you when you're online? Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. Did you know that your internet service provider, like Comcast or Verizon, knows every single website you visit? Every single one, including the one you know I'm talking about. What's worse is they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN puts a stop to this. It creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. Use ExpressVPN on all your devices. It works on everything, phones, laptops, even routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected even if they don't have ExpressVPN. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is as easy as closing the bathroom door. You just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash remnant, not dingo, remnant, today. Use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash remnant, and you can get an extra three months off for free. That's expressvpn.com slash remnant. We thank ExpressVPN once again for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Um, But I do want to ask you, there are two questions I want to ask you. One is, 
I've been saying for a long time, and it would be irre- intellectually irresponsible or dishonest of me not to ask you directly about this since you came on to talk about ways to make the Senate great again. I have argued for a long time that one, one thing which would improve the quality of the Senate is um, if you, that no sitting senator is allowed to run for president until they've at least completed a first term. Or something like that, right? Because Obama, the second he got to the Senate, he immediately started running for president. And I would, I, I would be okay with even more draconian restrictions on that. Um, but the idea, I mean, it's very similar to your point about um, term limits and 12-year terms and all, all of that, is that there are a lot of people, the second they get there, they see this as a, now as a platform to perform upon to get the job that they really want. And it's one of the only reasons, it's one of my main defenses of Mitch McConnell is that you can love him or you can hate him or you can be angry at him. He's an institution guy and he wants to be the Senate majority leader and nothing else. Um, what do you think of that? And you do not have to personalize it in terms of your own uh, political prospects. Yeah, I, I think it would be a great thing if people came to the Senate to do Senate work for six years or for 12 years and then wanted to go back home and not just use it as a platform. You earlier said that Yuval's bingo card has been punched too many yeah. times uh, today. But Yuval's language about how people use institutions as opposed to try to steward institutions, um, cameras in the Senate make it a useful platform for people to try to run for president from from the day they arrive. But it would be really great if the Senate tried to say, hey, we used to have lifelong duration jobs and we're not going to have that anymore. We should be wrestling through really important but not that sexy questions like shorter duration jobs and how are we going to do job retraining and portability of benefits, not just around aggregable you know, retirement contributions, but also aggregable premiums for health care that could go with you across job and geography. None of those things are sexy enough to scream for cable news tonight for somebody who wants to run for president, but it'd be a really great way to love your neighbor and do some meaningful work uh, for four, six, eight, 10, 12 years here. So I, I'd be open to all sorts of Senate rule changes that looked at, um, again, it's not, a, it's not a constitutional change, it would be a Senate rule change that made the Senate an institution that tried to privilege deliberation because we don't have institutions that do deliberation. So I would love it if people weren't running for president from the Senate. I'd also love it if people weren't trying to feather their nests in advance on K Street. I'd love to have like a 99-year cooling off period when you leave the Senate before you can be a lobbyist. Doesn't need to be a lifetime, just maybe 100 years uh, after you leave the Senate, then you can lobby. Right now it's you know one to three years depending on the, the domain area. I think we should do lots of things that make the Senate focus on doing actual deliberative work. Okay, so I was wanted to talk about China, but we'll just have to have you back on so you can get your five timer award, uh, you know, uh, free subway sandwich and soda. Finally, this has um, been my but, dream since I was seven. <laughs> um, one of your ideas in the Wall Street Journal piece was about having a dorm where all the senators live together, right? What if, as part of the grand compromise, not seen since the early days of the Republic, we got this the cameras out of the Senate? and put them in the dorm. And we did like a real world thing where all the senators were on camera and you know Bob Dole's not around anymore, so you could be like, who took Ben Sass's peanut butter? Um, I think it would, be, it would be awesome. This is the worst naked and afraid episode <laughs> that girls ever dreamed up. I, I, I mean, you know, 
the Senate is a bad reality TV show just with 104 year olds. And now if we're going to move it into the dorm environment, it's going to cause lots of problems. I, I had a lot of my colleagues come up to me and they weren't upset like the progressive Twitter sphere about the 17th Amendment stuff. They were mostly upset about the dorm. Uh, <laughs> and in particular, I had a guy come up to me at lunch you know, with a table of other senators present. And he goes, the last thing that's going to make the Senate great again is me getting no more sex. <laughs> <laughs> and that led other people to immediately start chiming in. Hold up, hold up. Nobody said there would be a prohibition on conjugal visits in the Senate norm. We would just have to spell out all the rules. And so a whole bunch of folks started sort of working through the visitation uh, parameters <laughs> in the norm. <laughs> Um, no cameras, brother. Uh, there, I could go a lot of places with the conjugal visit uh, carve out for the Senate dorm, but I won't do that to you because that would be cruel. Think how many bingo cards had Yuval next to conjugal? On <laughs> all, the bingo um, all right. So uh, um, I will save the China stuff for another time because I know you got to go. And um, this has been a grueling process, but I will delightful conversation because it's always fun to talk to you and um um good luck actually getting any of this stuff done but i'm i'm pulling for you well thanks for having me on let's do it again let's talk china but let's also just talk about where technology is going to take us next right because we've we've only had mobile devices for 12 or 13 years and they've changed our politics we're going to have implantable devices soon we should be admitting that more you know ubiquitous uh, pervasive technologies have lots of consequences, and we haven't thought about what it does to deliberation. Implantables are going to change this. Particularly if if my plan of uh, implantable pain chips comes about, and we can, um, you know, activate people's pain collars when they do stupid things, I think would be fantastic. That would be fun to like shock senators on the floor when they <laughs> get get the wrong the stuff wrong, and that be that'd be great. I want to see Dingo have the remote control on your pain chip. <laughs> All right, Senator Sass, thanks for coming on The Remnant. Really appreciate it. Peace. Okay, so uh, Senator Sass has left, and we had quite a few challenges with uh, the technology here. Um, it's kind of amazing. We've done, I don't know, 50 of these podcasts over Zoom and Zencaster and whatever. And uh, I think we had more trouble with this than any of them before. So it's good to know that, you know, uh, at least when it comes to Wi Fi technology, the U.S. Senate is uh, emphasizing savings over quality. Um, regardless, always good to talk to Senator Sass. I apologize we couldn't get to everything that we wanted to, but um, even if the conversation seemed short, uh, he was actually here for quite a long time um, dealing with all this stuff. And he also had to go run and vote or whatever they call it up there. Um, but uh, I hope people enjoyed it. We're gonna do, I, I had this crazy idea. We're gonna throw the the little mini speech that he gave his opening remarks at the Kavanaugh hearing um, after the credits, as it were, even though we don't really roll credits, but at the end of this. So if you've never heard it, um, you can tune in and listen to it. And if you have heard it and don't want to hear it again, you can just stop at the usual sign off point. Uh, again, if you can sign up for a 30 day trial or just skip the trial and just become a member of the dispatch, that would be awesome. Uh, we are really uh, eager to do all sorts of exciting things, but we have to do it in a financially and uh, business-like, uh, responsible way. 
And that means we can't get way out ahead of our revenues. And even though our revenues are going better than we had budgeted, uh, we got to do this the right way. And so the more subscribers we get, the more um, we are more we are pursuing the kind of journalism that Senator Sass and his non-endorsement of the kind of journalism that we're doing was talking about. So if you do that, that would be great. And um, by the time this comes out, the Dispatch Live will event will have already happened. Um, so I can't really talk about how awesome that was. But if you had been um, a paid member of the Dispatch community, you would know what I'm talking about because you would have been able to see it. You would have been able to see my um, disturbingly long locks flowing in the air-conditioned breeze, and uh, which Senator Sass, before we started recording, made fun of quite a bit. Um, and other than that, I will see you next time. Senator Sass. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, we need to get to Judge Kavanaugh, but I really want to riff with Amy for a while. She, Amy, Senator Klobuchar, you did Madison, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the Magna Carta, and your dad Thank you. taking Thank you, you to you. court. I well done. That. You were, you. I had all that on my bingo card. Uh, I, I, have, I have little kids, and I've taken my two little girls to court a few times, too, mostly to juvie, just to scare them straight, not to turn them into attorneys. But, uh, but that's Who not. said that that wasn't what my dad was doing, Senator Sass? <laughs> That was wisdom in Minnesota. Um, congratulations, Judge, on your nomination. Um, Ashley, um, congratulations and condolences. Uh, this process has to stink. Uh, I'm glad your daughters could get out of the room, and I hope they still get the free day from school. Um, let's do some good news, bad news. The, the, the bad news first. Um, Judge, since your nomination in July, you've been accused of hating women, hating children, hating clean air, wanting dirty water. Um, you've been declared a quote-unquote existential threat to our nation. Uh, alumni of Yale Law School incensed that faculty members at your alma mater praised your selection, wrote a public letter to the school saying, quote, people will die if Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed. Um, this drivel is patently absurd, and I worry that we're going to hear more of it over the next few days. But the good news is, uh, it is absurd, and the American people don't believe any of it. Uh, this stuff isn't about Brett Kavanaugh when screamers say this stuff for cable TV news. The people who know you better, uh, not those who are trying to get on TV, they tell a completely different story about who Brett Kavanaugh is. You've earned high praise from the many lawyers, both right and left, who've appeared before you during your 12 years on the DC circuit, and those who've had you as a professor at Yale Law and at Harvard Law. People in legal circles invariably applaud your mind, your work, your temperament, your collegiality. That's who Brett Kavanaugh is. Um, and to quote Lisa Blatt, a Supreme Court attorney from the left who's known you for a decade, quote, sometimes a superstar is just a superstar, and that's the case with this judge. The Senate could, should confirm him, close quote. It's pretty obvious to most people going about their work today um, that the deranged comments actually don't have anything to do with you. So we should figure out why do we talk like this about Supreme Court nominations now? There's a bunch that's atypical in the last 19, 20 months in America. Senator Klobuchar's right. The comments from the White House yesterday about trying to politicize the Department of Justice, they were wrong and they should be condemned. And my guess is Brett Kavanaugh would condemn them. Um, but really, 
The reason these hearings don't work is not because of Donald Trump. It's not because of anything the last 20 months. These confirmation hearings haven't worked for 31 years in America. People are going to pretend that Americans have no historical memory, and supposedly there haven't been screaming protesters saying women are going to die at every hearing for decades. But this has been happening since Robert Bork. This is a 31-year tradition. There's nothing really new the last 18 months. So the fact that the hysteria has nothing to do with you means that we should ask, what's the hysteria coming from? The hysteria around Supreme Court confirmation hearings is coming from the fact that we have a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of the Supreme Court in American life now. Our political commentary talks about the Supreme Court like there are people wearing red and blue jerseys. That's a really dangerous thing. And by the way, if they have red and blue jerseys, I would welcome my colleagues to introduce the legislation that ends lifetime tenure for the judiciary. Because if they're just politicians, then the people should have power, and they shouldn't have lifetime appointments. So until you introduce that legislation, I don't believe you really want the Supreme Court to be a politicized body, though that's the way we constantly talk about it now. We can and we should do better than this. It's predictable that every confirmation hearing now is going to be overblown, politicized circus. And it's because we've accepted a new theory about how our three branches of government should work, and in particular, how the judiciary should work. What Supreme Court confirmation hearings should be about is an opportunity to go back and do schoolhouse rock civics for our kids. We should be talking about how a bill becomes a law and what the job of Article 2 is and what the job of Article 3 is. So let's try just a little bit. How did we get here and how can we fix it? I want to make just four brief points. Number one, in our system, the legislative branch is supposed to be the center of our politics. Number two, it's not. Why not? Because for the last century, and increasing by the decade right now, more and more legislative authority is delegated to the executive branch every year. Both parties do it. The legislature is impotent, the legislature is weak, and most people here want their jobs more than they really want to do legislative work, and so they punt most of the work to the next branch. Third consequence is that this transfer of power means the people yearn for a place where politics can actually be done. And when we don't do a lot of big, actual political debating here, we transfer it to the Supreme Court. And that's why the Supreme Court is increasingly a substitute political battleground in America. It is not healthy, but it is what happens, and it's something that our founders wouldn't be able to make any sense of. And fourth and finally, we badly need to restore the proper duties and the balance of power from our constitutional system. So point one, the legislative branch is supposed to be the locus of our politics properly understood. Since we're here in this room today, because this is a Supreme Court confirmation hearing, we're tempted to start with Article 3. But really, we need to, Article 3 is the part of the Constitution that sets up the judiciary. We really should be starting with Article 1, which is us. What is the legislature's job? The Constitution's drafters began with the legislature. These are, these are equal branches, but Article 1 comes first for a reason, and that's because policymaking is supposed to be done in the body that makes laws. That means that this is supposed to be the institution dedicated to political fights. If we see lots and lots of protests in front of the Supreme Court, that's a pretty good litmus test barometer of the fact that our republic isn't healthy. Because people shouldn't be thinking they are protesting in front of the Supreme Court. They should be protesting in front of this body. The legislature is designed to be controversial, noisy, sometimes even rowdy, because making laws means we have to hash out the reality that we don't all agree. Government is about power. 
Government is not just another word for things we do together. The reason we have limited government in America is because we believe in freedom. We believe in souls. We believe in persuasion. We believe in love. And those things aren't done by power. But the government acts by power. And since the government acts by power, we should be reticent to use power. And so it means when you differ about power, you have to have a debate. And this institution is supposed to be dedicated to debate and should be based on the premise that we know since we don't all agree, we should try to constrain that power just a little bit, but then we should fight about it and have a vote in front of the American people. And then what happens? The people get to decide whether they want to hire us or fire us. They don't have to hire us again. This body is the political branch where policymaking fights should happen. And if we are the easiest people to fire, it means the only way the people can maintain power in our system is if almost all the politicized decisions happen here, not in Article 2 or Article 3. So that brings us to a second point. How do we get to a place where the legislature decided to give away its power? We've been doing it for a long time. Over the course of the last century, but especially since the 1930s and then ramping up since the 1960s, a whole lot of the responsibility in this body has been kicked to a bunch of alphabet soup bureaucracies. All the acronyms that people know about their government or don't know about their government are the places where most actual policymaking, kind of in a way lawmaking, is happening right now. This is not what Schoolhouse Rock says. There's no verse of Schoolhouse Rock that says, give a whole bunch of power to the alphabet soup agencies and let them decide what the governance decision should be for the people, because the people don't have any way to fire the bureaucrats. And so what we mostly do around this body is not pass laws. What we mostly do is decide to give permission to the secretary or the administrator of bureaucracy X, Y, or Z to make law-like regulations. That's mostly what we do here. We go home and we pretend we make laws. No, we don't. We write giant pieces of legislation, 1,200 pages, 1,500 pages long, that people haven't read, filled with all these terms that are undefined, and we say the secretary of such and such shall promulgate rules that do the rest of our dang jobs. That's why there's so many fights about the executive branch and about the judiciary, because this body rarely finishes its work. And the House is even worse. Uh, I don't really believe that. It just seemed like it, you needed to try to unite us in some way. So I admit that there are rational arguments that one could make for this new system. The Congress can't manage all the nitty-gritty details of everything about modern government, and this system tries to give power and control to experts in their fields, where most of us in Congress don't know much of anything or uh, about technical matters for sure, but you could also impugn our wisdom if you want. But when you're talking about technical, uh, complicated matters, it's true that the Congress would have a hard time f sorting out every final dot and tittle about every detail. But the real reason, at the end of the day, that this institution punts most of its power to executive branch agencies is because it's a convenient way for legislators to have to, to be able to avoid taking responsibility for controversial and often unpopular decisions. If people want to get reelected over and over again, and that's your highest goal, if your biggest long-term thought around here is about your own incumbency, then actually giving away your power is a pretty good strategy. It's not a very good life, but it's a pretty good strategy for incumbency. And so at the end of the day, a lot of the power delegation that happens from this branch is because the Congress has decided to self-neuter. Well, guess what? The important, the important thing isn't whether or not the Congress has lame jobs. The important thing is that when the Congress neuters itself and gives power to an unaccountable fourth branch of government, it means the people are cut out of the process. There's nobody in Nebraska. 
There's nobody in Minnesota or Delaware who elected the deputy assistant administrator of plant quarantine at the USDA. And yet if the deputy assistant administrator of plant quarantine does something to make Nebraskans' lives really difficult, which happens to farmers and ranchers in Nebraska, who do they protest to? Where do they go? How do they navigate the complexity and the thicket of all the lobbyists in this town to do executive agency lobbying? They can't. And so what happens is they don't have any ability to speak out and to fire people through an election. And so ultimately, when the Congress is neutered, when the administrative state grows, when there is this fourth branch of government, it makes it harder and harder for the concerns of citizens to be represented and articulated by people that the people know that they have power over. All the power right now, or almost all the power right now, happens off stage, And that leaves a lot of people wondering, who's looking out for me? And that brings us to the third point. The Supreme Court becomes our substitute political battleground. It's only nine people. You can know them. You can demonize them. You can try to make them messiahs. But ultimately, because people can't navigate their way through the bureaucracy, they turn to the Supreme Court looking for politics. And knowing that our elected officials no longer care enough to do the hard work of reasoning through the places where we differ and deciding to shroud our power at times, it means that we look for nine justices to be super legislators. We look for nine justices to try to right the wrongs from other places in the process. When people talk about wanting to have empathy from their justices, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about trying to make the justices do something that the Congress refuses to do as it constantly abdicates its responsibility. The hyperventilating that we see in this process and the way that today's hearing started with 90 minutes of theatrics that are pre-planned with, with certain members of the other side here, it shows us a system that is wildly out of whack. And thus a fourth and final point. The solution here is not to try to find judges who will be policymakers. The solution is not to try to turn the Supreme Court into an election battle for TV. The solution is to restore a proper constitutional order with a balance of powers. We need schoolhouse rock back. We need a Congress that writes laws and then stands before the people and suffers the consequences and gets to go back to our own Mount Vernon if that's what the electors decide. We need an executive branch that has a humble view of its job as enforcing the law, not trying to write laws in the Congress's absence. And we need a, a judiciary that tries to apply written laws to facts and cases that are actually before it. This is the elegant and the fair process that the founders created. It's the process where the people who are elected, two and six years in this institution, four years in the executive branch, can be fired because the justices and the judges, the men and women who serve America's people by wearing black robes, they're insulated from politics. This is why we talk about an independent judiciary. This is why they wear robes. This is why we shouldn't talk about Republican and Democratic judges and justices. This is why we say justice is blind. This is why we give judges lifetime tenure. And this is why this is the last job interview Brett Kavanaugh will ever have. Because he's going to a job where he's not supposed to be a super legislator. So the question before us today is not what does Brett Kavanaugh think 11 years ago on some policy matter. The question before us is whether or not he has the temperament and the character to take his policy views and his political preferences and put them in a box marked irrelevant and set it aside every morning when he puts on the black robe. The question is, does he have the character and temperament to do that? If you don't think he does, vote no. But if you think he does, stop the charades.
Because at the end of the day, I think all of us know that Brett Kavanaugh understands his job isn't to re rewrite laws as he wishes they were. He understands that he's not being interviewed to be a super legislator. He understands that his job isn't to seek popularity. His job is to be fair and dispassionate. It is not to exercise empathy. It is to follow written laws. Contrary to the onion-like smears that we hear outside, Judge Kavanaugh doesn't hate women and children. Judge Kavanaugh doesn't lust after dirty water and stinky air. No, looking at his record, it seems to me that what he actually dislikes are legislators that are too lazy and too risk-averse to do our actual jobs. It seems to me that if you read his 300-plus opinions, what his opinions reveal to me is a dissatisfaction, I think he would argue a constitutionally compelled dissatisfaction, with power-hungry executive branch bureaucrats doing our job when we fail to do it. And in this view, I think he's aligned with the founders. For our Constitution places power not in the hands of this city's bureaucracy, which can't be fired, but our Constitution places the policy-making power in the 535 of our hands because the voters can hire and fire us. And if the voters are going to retain their power, they need a legislature that's responsive to politics, not a judiciary that's responsive to politics. It seems to me that Judge Kavanaugh is ready to do his job. The question for us is whether we're ready to do our job. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.